and welcome to this brand new podcast called What It Takes To Be. Thank you for listening. Here's a little snippet of what we got coming up. Yeah, why don't I take care of all the off-course stuff and you just concentrate on playing golf? And that's how ING started. And those guys were um, Arnold Palmer and Gary Clark. Me and this guy have got a lot of history throughout my career and I cannot wait to pick his brains about what it has taken for him to become a sporting agent. So sit back, relax and enjoy episode number four of What It Takes To Be. Hello and welcome back to this brand new podcast called What It Takes To Be. I'm Dean Bowditch and I've always taken an interest in the psychology of top performing individuals. I can't do this alone. My co-host and good friend of mine, Jack Sharp, is joining me along the way. How are you doing, Jack? Hi, Bodes. Looking forward to this one again. I'm really looking forward to this one. I know that much. So we are really excited to pick the brains of individuals who have gone on to achieve something exceptional. We want to know past and present, their ups and downs and what it has really taken to get them into the position that they're in today. Um, I suppose from this podcast, we want to help influence people to not only chase their dreams and succeed, but to learn what it really takes to get there. So without further ado, I, I want to introduce our guest this week on what it takes to be. Uh, this person has represented some of the biggest stars across several different sports and industries. Once worked for a massive agency firm called IMG, until deciding to part ways and go solo as an agent. They have worked in some probably of the most intense high stakes situations where being calm and composed was needed in abundance. Some of those being with the likes of Teddy Sheridan, Kelly Holmes, Alan Pardew, just to name a few. I'm sure he'll tell you many, many more. Um, I can personally say I've been fascinated by some of the stories told to me over the years. Barry has been my agent for my whole professional career and has been um, a real family member to, to us all really. Uh, I want to know what it's really taken to to deal with some of those high um, intense situations that he's been in and I'm extremely excited myself and I'm sure Jack is as well to welcome along Barry Neville. How you doing Baz? I'm good mate, nice to see you. <laughs> was, that, was that intro okay? Yeah very good, yeah I'm <laughs> impressed. Well we do, we start off every podcast Baz with um, with the same question and what it basically is is what does it take to be a professional sporting agent um it, it wasn't that easy mate to be honest it was never never a plan um my only plan that like i found out a little bit later in life was i wanted to work in sport i had a short period of time at millwall didn't make it there and then I ended up working in the solicitors for four years, nearly five. Then decided I should go to college, went to Loughborough and went to the States. But whilst there, I decided I wanted to work in sport. And when I came back to England, I started working in a leisure centre as the lowest of the low, putting out the equipment, taking down the equipment, all that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, worked my way up, became... The manager of a leisure centre in uh, Walthamstow, uh, then eventually became the uh, recreation officer for the London Borough of Redbridge in charge of all their sports facilities. But at that point, I started uh, to get a bit disenchanted with it because I was dealing with elected members, councillors, and that made it a very difficult job, but I wasn't enjoying it as much. Um, I was playing part-time football and uh, a friend of mine was a co-owner of St Albans City and um, he was in business with a, a gentleman called Bobby Moore. Um, they had a company called Mitchell Moore Associates which organised sports events, etc. for TV, other media, newspapers, etc. Et uh, John, John Mitchell said to me that they needed someone to work with them uh, would I be interested? So uh, off I went. I remember going to meet them for lunch one day and I went to their office, which was in Fulham Broadway, above some shops, and I uh, went up the stairs and the first person I bumped into was Bobby Moore. 
and I'd never met Bob before. And he said, um, come, Bell, we'll, uh, there's a wine bar over the road. We'll go over there and uh, Mitch will catch us up. Uh, and I remember standing on the edge of the pavement on Fulham Broadway, going across the road, and I re- remember looking at the guy who's standing next to me and thinking, it's Bobby Moore. Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up working with those guys, and we did things like uh, we organised events for MTV, for News International, golf events for News International, all sorts of people, Channel 4, et cetera, et cetera. And... Um, Really, I was um, I was the logistics guy. I made these events happen. Bobby got the meetings and got the business. John Mitchell did most of the commercial stuff, and I made these things happen on the floor, so to speak. I even uh, invented the Masters football tournament, um, which was on Sky for a, a few years. But um, after Bob passed away, Basically, because of a guy called John Salarco, I'd got John some work presenting uh, a football show for MTV and doing the African Nations Cup for Channel 4 at the time. And John came to meet me. By then, we had an office in uh, the West End in, uh, in it, off of Great Portland Street. John came to meet me for lunch. And as we're walking around to this restaurant for lunch, John said to me... Uh, have you ever thought of being an agent? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, would you ever go up being mine? And that's how I started. Uh, John at the time was probably about 19, 20 years old. He played for England half a dozen times. And um, and John, yeah, I got on famously with John. And um, I ended up working for John. All, while this was going on, I was coaching. Well, we had private coaching courses at a school in Woodford. Uh, on a Wednesday evening, and me and another guy. This guy used to bring his four-year-old son along to the coaching courses, and um, the son's name was Charlie Sheringham, and his dad was Teddy. <laughs> uh, so uh, I obviously got talking to Ted, and uh, Ted was at Nottingham Forest then, and um, Ted told me that uh, he was just coming out of a boot contract with Puma, and could I sort him out a boot contract? So, which I did with Adidas. So I've been working for Ted ever since, and that's oh, 25 years ago. Uh, so that's how I took my first steps into becoming an agent. It wasn't a master plan. It was John Salaka, I suppose. Well, what we're really interested in as well is I've learned, I've worked with you. I know I know you really really well, and. One of the reasons why I loved having you as an agent was just having you as a person, you know, that, that put us people first and made sure that we uh, were treated well. But that isn't every agent, you know. So what what was it that you had to learn very quickly? Now you're representing Teddy Sheridan to become an agent of who or what became one of the biggest stars in football. Um, to be honest, mate, I, I, I think the personal bit was... That's just my personality. That's just the way I, I, I am. And um, I always wanted, you know, the clients always came, came first. You know, it was, ne- it was never about me. It was about the clients and taking away anything that might get in their way, uh, might prove an obstacle to them in terms of uh, furthering their career. And, you know, that didn't matter whether it was Dean Bowditch, Teddy Sheringham, Kelly Holmes, whoever. Um, it was all about ch- trying to make the road as smooth for them as possible. And, you know, th- along with that, obviously, comes families. You know, families play an enormous part in people's lives. And, uh, you know, we're, you know f- families uh, are a close second. Um, you have to look after the families as well, you know. And... Um, you, you also, you know, when it doesn't work out uh, as a professional athlete, you know, you still need to be there. I get phone calls now from parents who want to know if I can help because their son's been released by a club and um, they can't get hold of their agent. And that, that, that still happens, you know. That's what it was all about, mate. It was all about the client, putting the client first, you know, being in the background, you know. I've never... Never done TV, 
I've been asked a load of times, you know, to go on Sky or whatever, but just won't do it because it's not about me. You know, it's about, you know, Teddy Sheringham or, you know, John Salago or whoever. I think, um, Barry, it's really interesting you listen to talk about that in terms of those beliefs come first because something that we talk about a lot on this podcast are the power of values and personal values that are unique to, to all of us but how important is it that the values of your clients almost represent your values as well does it help with developing synergy with each other or is it something that's not particularly focused upon uh, Jack I've, 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 I've found all the, all the people that I've worked with for a long time we have got that synergy you know i understand what they want and they know that i'll do my best you know to make that happen for them so some clients i've been with uh for a shorter period of time and you know they get their head turned by another agent or someone else you know the grass is always greener on the other side and i can do this for you and i can do that for you invariably it doesn't happen you know? Um, or you know, money might get involved, you know, uh, but I couldn't compete when uh, uh, another agent, I think it was, came along and offered to buy his mum a house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they might deliver in terms of cash or houses or something like that. And, you know, I've had a client like that. I've had more than one client like that. And, uh, you yeah, know, they disappear. Um, the ones that have stayed loyal are, are still with me twenty odd years later. Yeah, I think I think for me, Baz, it's it's sort of what what I'd really like to know is some of these. I said in the intro about some of these high intense um, situations that you found yourself in. You know, where actually a decision either way can make or break an individual, or it can it can. In hindsight, you probably made decisions, and you go. You know, I wish I'd done that slightly differently. But is there like anything in particular, an example you can give us? I know there's one you've told me in the past um, about a situation where you've had to be really, really careful because you've got to think about your client plus, you know, the, the situation that they're in. You know, is there something you can tell us where you've had to kind of be really composed? You, you see you see a different person, mate, when when i'm talking to a ceo or a chairman or an owner of a club or you know it's a it's a totally different person i still got a smile on my face uh i like to leave as i came in as a friend because you never know when you're gonna have to go back you know whether it's for the client that you're there for or whether it's for another client um who, who is the one you were thinking of I was thinking the one with Teddy at Man United. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you just yeah that one. Yeah, they he, Teddy initially signed a three-year contract at Manchester United in um, the summer of '97, and coming to the end of that third year, they wanted him to sign for another year. So I went to the stadium to meet Martin Edwards, the owner who had negotiated Teddy's other contract with. And um, I did a little bit of research into Martin, found out he was into the American Civil War. He'd just been on holiday going down the Mississippi on a paddle boat, on a paddle steamer, uh, visiting Civil War sites. So I knew a little bit about the American Civil War, but the first 30 minutes of our meeting at his office at Old Trafford was about the American Civil War. We didn't really mention Teddy Sheringham. Uh, Martin made an offer uh, for Teddy for another year. And um, I remember looking at it and thinking, it's not really what we're looking for. Because uh, Teddy would have been a free agent and he'd have been offered a lot more elsewhere. Uh, so I said to Martin, I didn't think it was enough uh, that I would have to speak to Teddy and I would come back to him and that I'd have to leave. And, you know, we shook hands, we were fine, and I left. And I remember driving back. Uh, I got as far as Altrincham, I think. And uh, the phone rang and it was my PA and she said to me, um, 
Baz Martin Edwards has been just been on the phone. Can you call him back? So uh, I remember putting into a car park in a McDonald's in Altrincham, calling him back, and uh, he'd up the offer. And I said to him, "I'm not sure. Uh, I need to speak to Teddy. I'll come back to you." And Teddy was playing golf in uh, Ireland with uh, Dennis Irwin, I remember. And uh, I told Ted what the deal was that was on the table. And he said, what do you think? I said, I think there's more if you were prepared to call the, their bluff. And he said, go on then. He left it to me. He carried on playing <laughs> golf, Mr. Call. So I phoned Martin Edwards back and I told him, left it with him. And I remember getting on the M6 and I hadn't even got as far as Birmingham when he phoned me again, Martin Edwards, and he upped the offer to what we wanted. Um, so Teddy signed for another year at Manchester United. But the reason I like that story is what what I think you don't realise is you showed an incredible amount of trust in sort of your judgment, you know, and then actually you, you knew what Teddy was worth. But to walk away, Baz, from the Manchester United ballroom, essentially, you know, with, like some people think you're nuts. But but you know you just you you stood by your your judgment. That was the that was why I love it so much. Yeah yeah, and oh, you've got to believe in the person that you're working for and the value that they've got. And you know what you know every club will try it on, mate. You know every you know they'll try and get you for as cheap as possible. But yeah, you you have to believe in the value of your client and um, you know be prepared to hold your nerve and. You know, it's easy for someone like Teddy because Teddy's a poker player. You know, he'll hold his nerve, you know, uh, which he did. He, you know, he was like, I'll leave it to you. You just teed up my next question quite nicely by touching upon the value of someone that you work for. And um, me and Bodes obviously both know that, um, like, you, like you spoke about in the intro, you worked for IMG, obviously massive agency firm at the time. Yeah. What was it that made you decide to go solo? Uh, to, to, to be honest, Jack, I, I, I had my own company before going to IMG. And IMG, I got a phone call out of the blue from a guy called Andrew Croker, who was the head of football at IMG, um, asking me to meet him for lunch. And uh, I'd been recommended to them by a mutual <coughs> friend. Whilst IMG were big in football in terms of television rights and things like that, they were never in the client management business in terms of football, you know, soccer as they call it in the States. Um, the the owner uh, of the company was a guy called Mark McCormack, uh, who was the first ever sports agent in the world. Uh, he started the business uh, in probably about 1969 he was i believe a failed golfer he was a lawyer and his couple of his friends who were pro, pro golfers he could see that they were getting inundated with off course uh, requests etc and he said to them you know why don't i take care of all the off course stuff and you just concentrate on playing golf and that's how ING started, and those guys were um, Arnold Palmer and Gary Player. Not, not, not a bad start. So he started ING, and um, I remember reading his story. Uh, there was a book he wrote. He wrote lots of books, what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. And I, I remember reading that when I was at college and thinking, I wouldn't mind working for this guy sometime. So when the call came you know, to go and meet Andrew Croker for lunch, and by the way, Andrew's father, Ted Croker, was the former... Uh, secretary of the Football Association. He'd, he'd be the CEO nowadays, you know, but in those days he was the secretary. Um, so uh, I went and met Andrew. Andrew told me that Mark McCormack had decided they wanted to be in the football client business. And uh, basically he wanted me to go in there and help start it up. That's what I did. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And um, I joined and uh, IMG were the biggest company in the world, as you said. They uh, represented all the big tennis players, all the big golf stars, 
you know, they, they were absolutely massive. And the television arm of IMG is, is called TWI. They produce more TV program hours uh, than any other company around the world. And, you know, it was just a massive company. About 2,000 people working for them in London. So I joined. And I joined because I thought I'd read Mark's book and I thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be a great place to work and all that. But I was quickly disappointed after going there, mate, because uh, um, client came second unless you were um, at the time a Colin Montgomery or someone like that, yeah, who was the number one in the golf department in in London and had everyone running after him, yeah. Uh, if you were just someone just making enough money to stay on the tour, yeah, much harder work. And I, to be honest, when my time came to renew my contract at IMG, I couldn't wait to get away. That's basically <laughs> the story of IMG. What was it you learned off the back of being part of the biggest agency firm in the world? going forward as a solo agent, you know, what was it that you learned from that to take yourself forward? <laughs> it's not what, always what it says in the book, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a good experience and it taught me, yeah, it taught me some good things. Um, it gave me some good things. Uh, but ultimately, it, as I say, it was, you know, bottom line driven. You know, and if you, if you weren't producing the numbers, you know, yeah, that's that's what it, it was too big, to be honest, unless you were a big star. I think um, a follow up from something like that is is like perception of agents, because I, rem I remember when you said to me once you was like, and you still, you know, I mean, you've mentioned to it more recently, you know, would you become an agent? And. My first, my first response to something like that was like, well, I can't use the, the exact words I said to you, but you've got to be a, you know, a bit of a, you know what, to become an agent because that's just really cutthroat. And you just kind of shut me down straight away, and you went, not necessarily, you know, I was never like that. And I think that was really kind of poignant at the time because, actually, you, you are right. You know, you haven't been in the career for this long, um, being a, you know what. But what I suppose the follow-up question for me is, as the times have gone, you know, the modern-day footballer now and the modern-day agent has gone on, How I suppose how have you adapted to the game and have you changed your ways a little bit or have you tried to sort of bring new things in, especially with like the kind of the more modern-day player or the modern-day agent? In the last 25 years, football's changed dramatically, obviously with the, pre you know, with the Premier League. It's also changed... With the ownership of football clubs and the people that you're dealing with, you know, when I dealt with Martin Edwards, when Teddy first went to Manchester United, you know, the club was owned by the family. It had been owned by the family for many years, you know. Now it's owned by an American corporation who are there for the numbers, really. So football's evolved in that way. And it's also evolved in so much as you're out the 92 professional clubs, how many of the owners are British? You know, not many British people now want to own a football club. You know, uh, I spoke to someone the other day asking him if he might be interested in owning a football club. And he said, I'd oh, no, rather set fire to my money and watch it burn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, it's not, it's not easy sometimes dealing with these people. Yeah. Yeah, someone like Mike Ashley, for example, gets an awful lot of stick, but he's a great bloke to deal with. I'd rather deal with Mike than because you know exactly where you stand. Yeah, I'd rather have that than people putting deals in front of you and then taking them away. And yeah, I remember once with you, for example, we were on halfway to Peterborough, weren't we, to sign for Peterborough? Yeah, go on, tell tell, tell everyone about that one. Tell everyone about that. And Barry Fry called to say them uh, halfway there. Barry Fry called to say the meeting's off. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was yeah, hilarious. He, he turned around and came. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's difficult. You know, my, you know, as as I was saying, Mike Ashley gets a lot of stick, but I'd rather deal with Mike Ashley than a lot of the owners out there, to be honest. Yeah, M Mike was uh, famously gave Mr. Pardew an eight-year contract. So, uh, 
it's uh, yeah, there are some good guys out there. And if any Newcastle supporter is this, they're going to kill me for saying, you know, Mike probably comes into that category. But he's a proper businessman who runs the club as a business, which I know, you know, the Newcastle fans won't like to hear. But, you know, um, they've been successful. Yeah, they might not have won any leagues, and but Mike's not going to, like a lot of British potential owners, he's not going to throw his money away down the drain, you yeah? trying to compete with countries that own Manchester City or great big American corporations that own Manchester United and, yeah, etc. That's what's changed, mate. Football's just got, for me, so, so big and so corporate now. The days when a Martin Edwards could own a club like Manchester United are, are long gone. With that, Barry, obviously you, you've you've been on the inside in the inner circle when you've seen all of these changes to the entertainment the sports industry uh, in terms of how it now sits upon a, a proper global uh, scale, especially English football. Are there things that you've had to change yourself to almost kind of stay relevant and up to date with how the world changed so quickly in these industries? Not really. The, the re- it's all about the relationship with with your clients and. My relationship with my clients really has has not changed from 25 years ago to to, to now, to be honest. You know, say someone like Dean likes the way I work and he's happy being with me, then it's great. You know, uh, on the other hand, he might prefer working with another agent who's more, uh, how can I say, out there and in your face and snarling and whatever. It's whatever suits, you know, and, uh, you know, that that's, again, that's coming back. That's the most important thing for me. Yeah, I, I have to deal with some different types of people now. You know, there was uh, someone at Southampton who was the CEO at Southampton. He was a different type of person, you know. Uh, I really can't say what made him so different, um, but um, he was a... Uh, I think Swiss national, and uh, he uh, certainly uh, did things differently. Yeah, Southampton Football Club became like a, a concentration camp, if you like. Every email going in and out of that place was uh, read. Nothing was signed off without him doing it. And I remember him taking me around the stadium before one game, one evening. He said, I want to show you the changes we're going to make. And uh, as we were walking around the stadium, some of the staff who were working that night were running and hiding in cupboards and things like that because he was coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't. To be honest, I don't work for the clubs. I work for the clients. So you know, I still do the same thing when I go into a boardroom that I did. You know, my first deal was with Kevin Keegan at, at Newcastle. I still do what I do. You know, what I did with Kevin all those years ago. So. That's not changed. I just treat them as I'd like to be treated, to be honest. Do you find your roles harder now due to the media scrutiny that that agents are almost put under? Because you look at a lot of media outlets, agents almost vilified at the moment, aren't they, in terms of some of them in their own right are superstars as much as the players that they represent. Do, do you find that a difficult environment to work in at the moment because of what is being said by media? No, no, mate. I don't, I, to, to be honest, I don't because I don't have anything to do with it. You know, I know very few other agents. You know, if if agents want to go on TV or talk to the press about their client, you know, uh, then that's down to them. If their client's happy with that, you know, again, that's down to them. Um, but it's something I've never done, something I've never wanted to do. Yeah, and it's, I'm sure it's something that you know people like Teddy Sheringham, you know, never wanted me to do. You know, there's one there's one story that I would tell you that it's just a very quick story. I always remember I can't remember which member of the written press it was telling me what a great job I'd done for Teddy Sheringham getting into Manchester United, and I remember saying to him, I'm just giving him a funny look and saying to him. I haven't got Teddy to Manchester United. Teddy's got Teddy to Manchester United. You know, do you think Manchester United would have signed Teddy if it was just me saying, oh, you've got to sign Teddy? No, no, no. 
that's not how it works. Yeah, we'd rather let it's the football do the talking. It's all about the client. Yeah, whether it's Teddy Sheringham or Paul Pogba or you know Gareth Bale. Yeah, if they want to do their talking through their agents, then so be it. But I think the best way to do it, as always, is on the pitch. I'm glad you've said that because throughout my career we've 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 had some ups and downs together and I remember you always said you know let the football do the talking and it's something that as a player and there's many players out there they look for their agent sometimes to to give them a miracle and all, all it is is as yeah. long as you put as long as you put the hard work on the pitch then you're there to support that and I've I've always yeah. seen I've always, and, and I know you won't say it because you're too humble in yourself, but you've always been that supportive role for many. You know, you you have always put the client first, but you you support people in in their industry, and that's not just sport; that's across any industry. And so, I, was, I suppose for our listeners, it's 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 actually having that um, that ambition. If you want to go into something like agency, is actually you really have to make sure you're the right person for the role because you mm. have to put the clients first. You have to support them like you would support your own family. And we talk a lot of it about empathy and we talk a lot about, you know, treating people like people. But what I suppose what I would really like to know is the dark times, you know, the really, really, the really, really tough times. Because look, I've been through some tough times and you've been there to support me. But what has been, I suppose, your your biggest setback where you've had to really overcome adversity? In such a short career, mate, the, the obvious thing that, stands out is uh, injuries you know and you know when a client suffers uh, a really bad injuries for example someone like Matthew Upson um, Matthew Upson suffered three horrendous injuries a broken leg ruptured Achilles and uh, ruptured cruciate yeah and to go to go through that is hard yeah and I think he suffered from all of those before he was 25, 26 years old. You can only do so much, mate. I remember going to pick him up from a hospital in Stoke. I think it was after the Achilles, and bringing bringing him back to my house to look after him for two weeks because his mum and dad were on holiday and he had no one else to look after him. Those those sort of things, yeah. They're 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 they're, they're the hardest things, you know. And obviously things. They involve your family and, you know, yeah, they're, they're difficult. But when you've got a career, which I think we were talking about the other day, the, the probably, probably the average life expectancy of a career for a professional footballer is about eight years, yeah? You know, to see, you know, someone suffer a serious injury, you know, like your brother did uh, with, with a broken leg, etc. And, you yeah, know, that's, that's tough. That's, that's, that's really tough. Yeah, it's it's not so tough sometimes. Yeah, you know, I used to laugh at Matthew Upson who'd phone me on a Friday afternoon after he'd left training at Arsenal, telling me that he didn't get a bib. You know, you know what that means. I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and we had to go through the same scenario week after week after week because he was trying to break into an Arsenal team that had. Keown and Adams as his two two centre halves, um, but you, you know if you got a bib on Friday morning, that meant you were in the team on Saturday. And so when I always got the call on a Friday afternoon, not always got the call because sometimes he did get a bib. But, uh, yeah, that, that's quite hard. Yeah, um, I don't know. There's there's all sorts of things, mate. Uh, you know, you perhaps digging someone out of a hole when they've got themselves in a hole. I had one client at Arsenal who got himself in a big hole by uh, having a reporter in a headlock and threatening to knock his head off after a <laughs> Champions League game. <laughs> and uh, I got a phone call from uh, the press lady at Arsenal saying, are you still in the ground, Barry? And I'm like, yeah. She said, you better come down. We need you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you who it was, but you can guess. I think I can guess, but I won't say it. It wasn't Matthew Upson. Dino, just on on that point, it's also that, you know, it's the parents as well, yeah. you know, uh, and other close family. 
you know, because you've got to manage their expectations as well. I, I, I remember sitting at Wembley watching, I think it was one of Capello's first games against Switzerland, I think, and uh, with England. And um, at halftime, the player in question got taken off and his girlfriend was, oh, why have they done that? And, you know, why is he taking him off? Oh, he's finished and all this. And you've got to manage that, you know, and I'm just trying to say to her, this is his first game. He's just looking at players and seeing you know, what he's got and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And expectations, because every parent thinks their son's the best in the world and, you know, their son's going to be another Messi or Ronaldo or, yeah. And you know, I'm afraid it don't always work out like that. Yeah. You, for example, had a great career. You know, you played an awful lot of games, scored, scored an awful lot of goals. Yeah. And I think you can honestly look at yourself and think, yeah, okay, I'm happy with what I did. I'll edit, I'll edit that bit out then. Yeah. He might be yeah. happy, some of us weren't. <laughs> Do you know what, though, Baz? I think you've spoken a lot about clients, you've spoken a lot about CEOs and other people, but if, if it's all right to ask a bit more about you, Barry, you know, who who looks after you? You know, so when, when you're going through your tough times, because... Ultimately, you're, you're a human being, you go through ups and downs. And I know one down in particular that was life threatening. And, you know, who is it then supports you? Because actually what you've done over the years is you've built relationships with people. And who is it then that kind of takes care of you when, when you go through your real, real sort of personal setbacks? Um, to, to, to be honest, mate, I mean, you know, obviously now the wife and, you know, the dog. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I got that in the right order. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's difficult to say, mate. I mean, you know, you become so close with families, and you know, it's not really my job to unload on families. You know, it's, they're worried about their sons, you know, and what their sons are doing. So. Yeah, I've become close to families, but no, I've never really, for the vast, well, for the first 15 years or whatever of doing this, I, I was pro- I was a single man, just wrapped up in what I was doing and just had to get on with it, really. Yeah, I had my mum and dad, obviously. They never really understood what I was doing. But, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. I, I think they only, they only started to understand once when, I took them to Wembley for an England game, and um, I remember t- uh, this big name drop here. Have you got a bell? Um, <laughs> I, I remember to after the game in the players' lounge. I was I was talking to David Beckham and Victoria and uh, David's parents, etc. And David said to me because uh, I've known him since he was four years old. He said to me, uh, "Bell, is that is that your mum and dad?" And I was like, "Yeah." I said, "Oh." come on, I'll come over and say hello. And he came over to say hello to my mum and dad. You know, and their faces were like a picture, you know, as you can imagine. They were used to Teddy. Teddy was old hat, you know, but David Beckham coming over to say hello. So, yeah, no, for, for a long while I was doing it on my on my own with my parents and, yeah, uh, with other close friends as well who, spoke, who I suppose weren't involved in the football business, you know, since then. The wife said the pleasure of looking after me. <laughs> Barry, I'd like to ask a bit of a technical question, if that's okay, because um, there'll be a lot of people listening to this that will will have a huge interest in sport and football, but may not necessarily see what goes on with the inner workings of how things work out. So in a real kind of whistle-stop tour, could you tell us about how a transfer comes around? Um. Well, the, the, the first one I ever did, Jack, was a proposed transfer uh, for John Solarco to go from Crystal Palace to Newcastle when Kevin Keegan was the manager. I was in the office uh, in London at the time. My phone rang and this voice said, hi, is that Barry? I said, yeah, he said, oh, Barry, this is Kevin Keegan. And my first reaction was, <laughs> this was my first deal, was, no, it's not. Who is it really? You know? <laughs> and it was like, he said, no, it's, look, he said, we've we've agreed to deal with Crystal Palace for John. 
he said would you like to come up and see us and i said yeah i'm sure i said i'll speak to john and i'll come back to you sure enough later on that same day we were on a flight up to newcastle uh john and myself we stayed at a friend of mine's house in just outside of durham and um he took us into the ground the next morning where we met up i remember john going off with terry mcdermott who was kevin's assistant to have a medical and i sat in the boardroom at newcastle with kevin keegan this is my first contract negotiating the terms for john for this contract we agreed the terms and um kevin said okay i'll go and get the contract typed up i'll go see get my pa to type the contract out so he left me in the boardroom on my own and i went and looked out the window over the car park then it was slightly different then you can see over the car park and news gets around in newcastle you know like wildfire you know and there must have been 200 people in the car park all looking up at the windows trying to see what's going on and uh i remember looking out the window and thinking what am i effing doing <laughs> yeah this was the first. <laughs> this was my first contract yeah and it was a lot of money so uh kevin came back into the room with the contract uh we checked it over and then i think we went off somewhere and had a cup of tea and waited for john to come back from his medical unfortunately john failed the medical we we got taken up to the owner's house so john hall i don't know if you remember that name who owned newcastle at the time uh we got taken up to his house uh they explained what had gone on with the medical etc and uh well uh, i've got my own view on whether john should have failed that medical or not because he did go on and play about another 300 games yeah so john ended up not signing newcastle because of a failed medical and then instead they signed some french guy called janola <laughs> i'm sure i know kevin and his staff wanted john because they knew they'd get a certain performance out of john every week and i don't think they were so sure that they'd get that out of you know uh janola but i think janola did very well in the answer yeah, little did I, know. I remember we were driving to uh to go to sir john's house um we we had to stop somewhere i think it might have been the hospital to pick out the x-rays or something and terry mcdermott was driving and we couldn't find anywhere to park and then there was a disabled bar available and i remember terry mcdermott who was a real live wire turning around to john and saying come on you must have a blue badge now we can park here <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't really changed a lot since then I mean, there are there are some sort of deals that go on at lower level, and I think what Jack wants to wants the listeners to understand is is kind of the ins and outs of a of a transfer, how it all works. But that sounds very similar to kind of what it is nowadays as well. I don't think it's really changed too much. Obviously, a bit more detail, but it hasn't really changed too much in the modern game either. Now, is it? No, no, not at all, really. No, no, no. It's still the same basics, you know. Uh, either the clubs will talk before they'll contact you, or they might contact you, the agent, you know, first to see if your client might be interested before they go and talk to that your client's club. But it's, it's, apart from that, it's basically the same thing. Contact will be made. You know, you, you go through that same sort of process, really. You might agree the terms and conditions before you actually go to the club, you know. Yeah, you got to think 25 years ago, email wasn't, you know, so hot. Everything was done by fax and all that sort of thing, you know. But nowadays, you'll do a lot of the paperwork you know, prior to going to the club, you know. T to be honest, Teddy Sheringham's deal to go to Manchester United was the same. It was a phone call from Martin Edwards saying, we've agreed a, a deal with Tottenham for Teddy. Would you like to come and see us? Yeah, I think we were there in Manchester before he said us. So, yeah um and you know it's a similar process really to what i just said to jack about you know the john Solarco one um just going through the motion you know of agreeing terms medicals and then when everything's signed and sealed then dealing with the press and that side of the business 
I remember the good thing about Teddy's at Manchester United was Albert Morgan, the kit man, giving us a lift back to the airport. And as we're driving towards the airport, he's asked me and Ted if we want to come round his house for a cup of tea with his wife. <laughs> Old kit men are the same, aren't they? And uh, yeah, so we did. We had a cup of tea with Albert and his wife. I suppose the the last question that I've got, which I know both um, we we spoke around, is whether or not dealing with sports people and athletes is different to people that work, I suppose, in the entertainment industry in terms of expectation set upon you in terms of the way that you have to interact with with people that you're trying to get your clients uh, or things that you're trying to get your clients to get involved with is there any difference really in terms of an approach you have to take working across multiple industries yeah definitely jack there's you know footballers a a lot of their life is taken care of by the club so when you're dealing with say an athlete like kelly holmes she has to control her own life you know um there's no one there to make the travel arrangements for her etc etc you know that probably falls down onto the agent you know which for five years was was me with her um i find athletes are more demanding because because of that i think you know uh they put more demands on you in terms of uh being there and uh, being by their side etc etc uh and it's, it's it's great to work with people like kelly holmes because she was driven so driven to achieve what she achieved you know two gold medals and you don't get that you don't win gold medals at olympic games unless you're as driven as she is yeah uh and i believe she's probably still the same now yeah nothing was going to get in her way to achieving that goal of a gold medal uh, and the fact that she won two um she was tough the toughest person i've worked for to be honest i enjoyed my time working with her but it was really hard work uh i went all around the world with her to olympic games etc but uh, there's one story i think that sums kelly up atlanta olympic games 1996 she was entered in the 800 and the 1500 and she kept injury secrets from everybody and i didn't know that she had a a slight problem uh, with soreness in her shin and she ran in the 800 she ran in the heat qualified for the semi she ran in the semi qualified comfortably for the final and in the final she finished fifth no fourth sorry just outside the medals i remember the next day uh i had a car and nike were looking after me and i i went to uh pick kelly up to try and uh from the team from where the british team was staying i went to get her to uh, try and cheer her up and all this sort of stuff you know and take her shopping and um when i turned up she had her foot in one of those uh casts you know she had a bottom part of her leg in one of those casts and i said what's the problem and she said i've got a stress fracture by her ankle I'm like, oh and so we, we we actually did go shopping and um, she's hobbling around. Um, I think we had Tessa Sanderson and Jamie Balsh with us as well, uh, who came along for the ride. So I said to Kelly at one point, so what are you going to do about the 1,500 metres? She said, oh, well, I'm going to run. And I'm like, really? And she said, well, the doctor says I can't do any more damage, so I might as well run. I'm here, I might as well run. And there she is with her foot in a cast, yeah? All right, okay. There's no telling Kelly no. You can't tell Kelly no. Uh, Kelly's got Kelly's got to be the one that says, okay, enough's enough. So uh, sure enough, the heat of the 1,500 metres, she ran and qualified. The semi, she ran and qualified for the final. And the warm-up track in Atlanta was about a mile away, which is unusual for Olympic Games. And they used to bust the athletes in from the warm-up track. And for the heat and for the semi of the 1500, the British team doctor had been going over to the warm-up track and giving her painkilling injections right down, as I say, where the tibia gets close to the ankle in that area there. 
and he'd given her a couple before the heat and a couple before the semi and uh he goes over there on the night of the final i remember i was in the stadium michael johnson broke the 200 meters world record uh it was all happening before me and then i got a phone call from kelly basically saying she was really upset and she said the doctor's been over he's given me three injections he couldn't find the right spot it's so sore she said and now i can't feel my foot so she basically explained it was like when you go to the dentist and you have a painkilling injection and yeah you can't feel your mouth she couldn't feel her foot which is not much good if you're going to run in an olympic 1500 meter final so uh i'm talking to her and i said are you still going to run and she went yeah she said i'm just going to go from the gun see where it takes me yeah and sure enough she did compete she went from the gun and she got about half a lap in front i think at one point and then they slowly wound her in yeah and i think she finished 11th out of 12 with a broken leg basically uh that's the difference i think for me between someone like her and a lot of footballers who think they want to make it and want to get right to the top but yeah, they don't really ever find out what it takes to get right to the top. Yeah, she she did because later on she won won those two Olympic gold medals. You know. You know what, mate? You were a big part of that, a supportive role for Kelly's in 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 achieving that. And I think um, you've told us some some brilliant stories. And ultimately, for the listener who's sort of thinking, you know, about becoming an agent, it it comes down to people at the end of the day. And, and my last question for you. It's something we ask every guest um, and, you know, you can keep it as short as you want to. It's what three attributes that you possess have got you to where you are today? Um, obviously, my looks. <laughs> I'm glad this is an audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what three things? I know, you know, I, I said earlier on about working in solicitors for four or five years uh, at an early age. At the time, I had no idea that it would help me later in life, but it's uh, that has certainly helped me. I think working with good people and good families, is you can't say enough about that. You know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to spend my working career working with you know, bad people and you know, bad families. You know, it's... I just think, you know, I, I can't say whether my my way of doing it is the right way of doing it or not. All I can say is it's the only way I could do it. Um, for me, that's proved to be the right way because, you know, I'm talking to you 20, 20 years on. You know, I'm, I'm talking to Anna Pardew 25 years on, on Teddy Sheringham, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I, th I think that trust element with your clients is the most important thing you've danced around that really nice right. mate, you, don't, you don't like talking about yourself we've said this i know this so like let's let's <laughs> let's try and let's try and pinpoint let's try and pinpoint some words here because you've said literally one word there that relates to this question and that's trust so trust is a massive thing yeah. for you so can you name two more things that you you have that has helped you get to there to where you are today understanding yeah understanding you know what what it what it takes to get to the top in a professional sports career you know whether it's football athletics four-man bobsleigh whatever it is you know <laughs> yeah you've got you, you've got to understand and you've got to understand you know what people are going through you know whether it's you know kelly holmes or whoever yeah um yeah c certainly that trust uh, understanding I suppose empathy is the same thing, really, as understanding, isn't it? Well, well we can take that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's. Look, I, I could probably name three things for you. Look, trust is a massive thing. Yeah, understanding, but you you are you are empathetic. You are caring. You know, you you put put people first, and I think that's kind of that's mm. actually what's got you to where you are today. And I'm probably speaking on on your behalf because I know you don't like talking about yourself um but, but we will we will finish it there mate uh, look, I, well, I really do appreciate you coming i just you know I, I just i just find you know everyone wants to be an agent you know there are it's like the wild west now 
you know when i first became an agent i think i've still got my part somewhere and i've got to post to hand i think and it, it says it says on it that i was number 21 somewhere uh, number 25. that is my first ever agent's pass when you had to uh, put up a bond can you not say it just about me. That. yeah just about yeah. oh i can see it now Christ uh, <laughs> yeah everyone thinks they can be an agent and uh you know it, it it's it's not as easy as that you know um was it two and a half thousand three thousand at the most professional footballers and there's probably more agents than that now. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a crazy world, mate. So, yeah, I'd, I, again, I'd, if I was starting again, I'd, I'd do it the same way as I did it 25 years ago. That's brilliant, mate. We'll finish on that message. That's a really nice message, mate. You wouldn't change anything of what you've achieved. And again, look, we really appreciate you coming on this this podcast, mate. It's something we've started and you were you were definitely one person I wanted to speak to. So, on behalf of myself and Jack, thank you for um, for taking part. It's a, ple- a pleasure, mate. Pleasure. Yes. Pleasure. Top man, Barry. So, Jack, what do you think of that? Uh, I can I can see why you sticked around with it, mate, for your career. <laughs> I, I can see how um, how infectious that he can be for the people that he works for. I think um, the big the big things that come out of that is. He, you know, he takes an immense amount of pride in who he represents and what he does. I think he's really driven by doing good, and that, you know, he he sees all of you guys as extended family, and I think that's lovely, isn't it? Is that he doesn't see pound signs above people's heads. He he sees that he's having an impact on a career and and providing those opportunities to to further establish individuals. And I think if, if more people had access to Barry. And there were more people like Barry in his industry. That the perception would be very, very different. I think um, in the public towards towards agents. I think um, because there are more and more agents now, especially in football. You know, we we know football probably better than most um, whoever's listening to this podcast. But we, we know that there are there are hundreds, if not thousands, of them now. And the problem with that is you need to you need to become, I suppose, someone that you might not be you know to to become an agent you might have to change your values change your your thought processes but he's he epitomizes someone who is just stuck to his guns he's stuck to his ways he he is what he is he's always been just a really really nice guy and he always puts people first and he puts he puts his emotions and his his kind of needs just to one side i mean it was really difficult to get answers out of him when you want when we were talking about him you know, and, and I and I knew that spending so much time with him, I knew that would be difficult on this podcast. And and we still didn't really get that answer. Even right at the end, he was still talking about his clients and the people that he looked after. And for anyone who wants to go into to agency, if you want to be in it for the longevity, you know, you have to put put your clients first. I think it was it's, it's fascinating to get a perception of someone that works or is so invested in sport, but not in the normal context that we associate sports to be within we've spoken a lot with managers and players and I just think it was really refreshing to get that almost independent view of of what it is like to work in those circles without being attached to a certain organization so um yeah great great guest Bose. well done great recommendation from you mate yeah he's I would I was always going to speak to him he's a top man for anyone like I said anyone that wants to get into that industry then if you can take take a moment just to listen to what he has to say you know, and really listen to it, then um, you'll do all right. You'll do all right in that industry. So thanks again, mate. Thanks for coming along on the journey. It's it's, it's brilliant to have you along board with your with your views. So um, long may that continue. And we'll, um, we'll see you again next week. Top man, Bodes. Looking forward Cheers, to it. Thank you to Barry for coming on to our podcast. I've really enjoyed picking his brains about being a sporting agent to some of the biggest stars across the world. Really hope you enjoyed that podcast. So please do like, share, comment, because we want to make this the best experience possible for our listeners. Thank you once again for joining myself and Jack, and we'll see you next week on What It Takes to Be. Mm-hmm.